Book Two, Chapter Eleven of Robert Ellesmere, by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Two, Chapter Eleven. Farewell to the mountains. The scene in which the next act of this unpretending history is to run its course is of a very different kind. In place of the rugged northern nature, a nature wild and solitary indeed, but still rich, luxuriant, and friendly to the senses of the traveller, even in its loneliest places. The heaths and woods of some districts of Surrey are scarcely more thickly peopled than the fells of Westmoreland. The walker may wander for miles, and still enjoy an untamed primitive earth, guiltless of boundary or furrow, the undisturbed home of all that grows and flies, where the rabbits, the lizards, and the birds live their life as they please, either ignorant of intruding man, or strangely little incommoded by his neighbourhood. And yet there is nothing forbidding or austere in these wild solitudes. The patches of graceful birch-wood, the miniature lakes nestling among them, the brakes of ling, pink, faintly scented, a feast for every sense, the stretches of purple heather glowing into scarlet under the touch of the sun, the scattered farmhouses, so mellow in colour, so pleasant in outline, the general softness and lavishness of the earth and all it bears, make these Surrey commons not a wilderness, but a paradise. Nature, indeed, here is like some spoilt, petulant child. She will bring forth nothing, or almost nothing, for man's grosser needs. Ask her to bear corn or pasture flocks, and she will be miserly and grudging. But ask her only to be beautiful, enticing, capriciously lovely, and she will throw herself into the task with all the abandonment, all the energy that heart could wish. It is on the borders of one of the wilder districts of a county, which is throughout a strange mixture of suburbanism and the desert, that we next meet with Robert and Catherine Ellesmere. The rectory of Muirwell occupied the highest point of a gentle swell of ground which sloped through cornfields and woods to a plain of boundless heather on the south, and climbed away on the north towards the long chalk ridge of the Hog's Back. It was a square white house, pretending neither to beauty nor state, a little awkwardly and barely placed, with only a small stretch of grass and a low hedge between it and the road. A few tall firs climbing above the roof gave a little grace and clothing to its southern side, and behind it there was a garden slipping softly down towards the village at its foot, a garden chiefly noticeable for its grass walks, the luxuriance of the fruit-trees clinging to its old red walls, and the masses of pink and white floxes, which now in August gave it the floweriness and the gaiety of an Elizabethan song. Below, in the hollow and to the right, lay the picturesque medley of the village, roofs and gables and chimneys, yellow-grey thatch, shining whitewash, and mellowed brick, making a bright patchwork among the softening trees, thin wreaths of blue smoke like airy ribbons tangled through it all. Rising over the rest of was a house of some dignity. It had been an old manor-house, now it was half ruinous, and the village inn. Some generations back the squire of the day had dismantled it, jealous that so big a house should exist in the same parish as the hall, and the spoils of it had furnished the rectory, so that the homely house was fitted inside with mahogany doors and carved carpet fronts, in which Robert delighted, and in which even Catherine felt a proprietary pleasure. Altogether a quiet, rural English spot. If the house had no beauty, it commanded a world of loveliness. All around it, north, south, and west, there spread, as it were, a vast playground of heather and wood and grassy common, 
in which the few workaday patches of hedge and ploughed land seemed engulfed and lost. Close under the rectory windows, however, was a vast sloping cornfield, belonging to the glebe, the largest and fruitfulness of the neighbourhood. At the present moment it was just ready for the reaper. The golden ears had clearly but a few more days or hours to ripple in the sun. It was bounded by a dark, summer-scorched belt of wood, and beyond, over the distance, rose a blue-pointed hill, which seemed to be there only to attract and make a centre for the sunsets. As compared with her Westmoreland life, the first twelve months of wifehood had been to Catherine Ellesmere a time of rapid and changing experience. A few days out of their honeymoon had been spent at Oxford. It was a week before the opening of the October term, but many of the senior members of the university were already in residence, and the stagnation of the long vacation was over. Langham was up, so was Mr. Gray, and many another old friend of Robert's. The bride and bridegroom were much fated in a quiet way. They dined in many common rooms and bursaries. They were invited to many luncheons, whereat the superabundance of food and the length of time spent upon it made the Puritan Catherine uncomfortable. And Langham devoted himself to taking the wife through the colleges and gardens, schools and Bodleian, in most orthodox fashion, indemnifying himself afterwards for the sense of constraint her presence imposed upon him by a talk and a smoke with Robert. He could not understand the Ellesmere marriage. That a creature so mobile, so sensitive, so susceptible as Ellesmere should have fallen in love with this stately, silent woman, with her very evident rigidities of thought and training, was only another illustration of the mysteries of matrimony. He could not get on with her, and after a while did not try to do so. There could be no doubt as to Ellesmere's devotion. He was absorbed, wrapped up in her. "'She's affected him,' thought the tutor at a period of life when he is more struck by the difficulty of being morally strong than by the difficulty of being intellectually clear. The touch of religious genius in her braces him like the breath of an alpine wind. I can see him expanding, glowing under it. Bien, sooner he than I. To be fair, however, let me remember that she decidedly does not like me, which may cut me off from Ellesmere. However, and Langham sighed over his fire, what have he and I to do with one another in the future? By all the laws of character, something untoward might come out of this marriage. But she will mould him, rather than he her. Besides, she will have children. That solves most things. Meanwhile, if Langham dissected the bride as he dissected most people, Robert, with that keen observation which lay hidden somewhere under his careless boyish ways, noticed many points of change about his old friend. Langham seemed to him less human, more strange than ever. The points of contact between him and active life were lessening in number, term by term. He lectured only so far as was absolutely necessary for the retention of his post, and he spoke with wholesale distaste of his pupils. He had set up a book on The Schools of Athens, but when Robert saw the piles of disconnected notes already accumulated, he perfectly understood that the book was a mere blind, a screen, behind which her difficult, fastidious nature trifled and procrastinated as it pleased. Again, when Ellesmere was an undergraduate, Langham and Gray had been intimate. Now Langham's tone apropos of Gray's politics and Gray's dreams of church reform was as languidly sarcastic as it was with regard to most of the strenuous things of life. "'Nothing particular is true,' his manner said, "'and all action is a degrading pis-aller. 
get through the day somehow with as little harm to yourself and other people as may be. Do your duty if you like it, but for heaven's sake don't cant about it to other people. If the affinities of character count for much, Catherine and Henry Gray should certainly have understood each other. The tutor liked the look of Ellesmere's wife. His kindly brown eyes rested on her with pleasure. He tried, in his shy but friendly way, to get at her, and there was in both of them a touch of homeliness, a sheer power of unworldliness that should have drawn them together. And indeed Catherine felt the charm, the spell of this born leader of men. But she watched him with a sort of troubled admiration, puzzled, evidently, by the halo of moral dignity surrounding him, which contended with something else in her mind respecting him. Some words of Robert's, uttered very early in their acquaintance, had set her on her guard. Speaking of religion, Robert had said, "'Grey is not one of us,' and Catherine, restrained by a hundred ties of training and temperament, would not surrender herself, and could not if she would. Then had followed their homecoming to the rectory, and that first institution of their common life, never to be forgotten for the tenderness and the sacredness of it. Mrs. Ellesmere had received them, and had then retired to a little cottage of her own close by. She had, of course, already made the acquaintance of her daughter-in-law, for she had been the Thornburg's guest for ten days before the marriage in September, and Catherine, moreover, had paid her a short visit earlier in the summer. But it was now, for the first time, that she realised to the full the character of the woman Robert had married. Catherine's manner to her was sweetness itself. Parted from her own mother as she was, the younger woman's strong filial instincts spent themselves in tending the mother who had been the guardian and life of Robert's youth. And Mrs. Ellesmere, in turn, was awed by Catherine's moral force and purity of nature, and proud of her personal beauty, which was so real, in spite of the severity of the type, and to which marriage had given, at any rate for the moment, a certain added softness and brilliancy. But there were difficulties in the way. Catherine was a little too apt to treat Mrs. Ellesmere as she would have treated her own mother. But to be nursed and protected, to be screened from draughts, and run after with shawls and stools, was something wholly new and intolerable to Mrs. Ellesmere. She could not away with it, and as soon as she had sufficiently lost her first awe of her daughter-in-law, she would revenge herself in all sorts of droll ways, and with occasional flashes of petulant Irish wit, which would make Catherine colour and draw back. Then Mrs. Ellesmere, touched with remorse, would catch her by the neck and give her a resounding kiss, which perhaps puzzled Catherine no less than her sarcasm of a minute before. Moreover, Mrs. Ellesmere felt ruefully from the first that her new daughter was decidedly deficient in the sense of humour. "'I believe it's that father of hers,' she would say to herself crossly. "'By what Robert tells me of him, he must have been one of the people who get ill in their minds for want of a good mouth-filling laugh now and then.' The man who can't amuse himself a bit out of the world is sure to get his head addled somehow, poor creature. Certainly it needed a faculty of laughter to be always able to take Mrs. Ellesmere on the right side. For instance, Catherine was more often scandalised than impressed by the, her mother-in-law's charitable performances. Mrs. Ellesmere's little cottage was filled with workhouse orphans sent to her from different London districts. The training of these girls was the chief business of her life and a very odd training it was, conducted in the noisiest way and on the most familiar terms. It was undeniable that the girls generally did well, and they invariably adored Mrs. Ellesmere, 
but Catherine did not much like to think about them. Their household teaching under Mrs. Ellesmere and her old servant, Martha, as great an original as herself, was so irregular, their religious training so extraordinary, the clothes in which they were allowed to disport themselves so scandalous to the sober tastes of the rector's wife, that Catherine involuntarily regarded the little cottage on the hill as a spot of misrule in the general order of the parish. She would go in, say, at eleven o'clock in the morning, find her mother-in-law in bed, half-dressed, with all her handmaidens about her, giving her orders, reading her letters and the newspaper, cutting out her girls' frocks, instructing them in the fashions, or delivering little homilies on questions suggested by the news of the day to the more intelligent of them. The room, the whole house, would seem to Catherine in a detestable litter. If so, Mrs. Ellesmere never apologised for it. On the contrary, as she saw Catherine sweep a mass of miscellaneous debris off a chair in search of a seat, the small bright eyes would twinkle with something that was certainly nearer amusement than shame. And in a hundred other ways, Mrs. Ellesmere's relations with the poor of the parish often made Catherine miserable. She herself had the most angelic pity and tenderness for sorrows and sinners. But she was sinned to her, and when she saw Mrs. Ellesmere more than half attracted by the stronger vices, and in many cases more inclined to laugh with what was human in them than to weep over what was vile, Robert's wife would go away and wrestle with herself, that she might be betrayed into nothing harsh towards Robert's mother. But fate allowed their differences, whether they were deep or shallow, no time to develop. A week of bitter cold at the beginning of January struck down Mrs. Ellesmere, whose strange ways of living were more the result of certain long-standing delicacies of health than she had ever allowed any one to imagine. A few days of acute inflammation of the lungs, born with a patience and heroism which showed the Irish character at its finest, a moment of agonised wrestling with that terror of death which had haunted the keen, vivacious soul from its earliest consciousness, ending in a glow of spiritual victory, and Robert found himself motherless. He and Catherine had never left her since the beginning of the illness. In one of the intervals towards the end, when there was a faint power of speech, she drew Catherine's cheek down to her and kissed her. "'God bless you,' the old woman's voice said, with a solemnity in it which Robert knew well, but which Catherine had never heard before. "'Be good to him, Catherine. Be always good to him.' And she lay looking from the husband to the wife, with a certain wistfulness which pained Catherine, she knew not why. But she answered with tears and tender words, and at last the mother's face settled into a peace which death did but confirm. This great and unexpected loss, which had shaken to their depths all the feelings and affections of his youth, had thrown Ellesmere more than ever on his wife. To him, made as it seemed for love and for enjoyment, grief was a novel and a difficult burden. He felt, with passionate gratitude, that his wife helped him to bear it, so that he came out from it not lessened but ennobled, that she preserved him from many a lapse of nervous weariness and irritation into which his temperament might easily have been betrayed and how his very dependence had endeared him to Catherine. That vibrating responsive quality in him, so easily mistaken for mere weakness, which made her so necessary to him, there is nothing, perhaps, which wins more deeply upon a woman. For all the while it was balanced in a hundred ways by the illimitable respect which his character and his doings compelled from those about him. To be the strength, the inmost joy, of a man who within the conditions of his life seems to you a hero at every turn, 
there is no happiness more penetrating for a wife than this. On this August afternoon, the Ellesmeres were expecting visitors. Catherine had sent the pony carriage to the station to meet Rose and Langham, who was to escort her from Waterloo. For various reasons, all characteristic, it was Rose's first visit to Catherine's new home. Now, she had been for six weeks in London, and had been persuaded to come on to her sister at the end of her stay. Catherine was looking forward to her coming with many tremors. The wild, ambitious creature had been not one atom appeased by Manchester and its opportunities. She had gone back to Windale in April, only to fall into more hopeless discontent than ever. "'She can hardly be civil to anybody,' Agnes wrote to Catherine. "'The cry now is all London, or at least Berlin, and she cannot imagine why Papa should ever have wished to condemn us to such a prison.' Catherine grew pale with indignation as she read the words, and thought of her father's short-lived joy in the old house and its few green fields, or of the confidence which had soothed his last moments, that it would be well there with his wife and children, far from the hubbub of the world. But Rose and her whims were not facts which could be put aside. They would have to be grappled with, probably humoured. As Catherine strolled out into the garden, listening alternately for Robert and for the carriage, she told herself that it would be a difficult visit. And the presence of Mr. Langham would certainly not diminish its difficulty. The mere thought of him set the wife's young forms stiffening. A cold breath seemed to blow from Edward Langham, which chilled Catherine's whole being. Why was Robert so fond of him? But the more Langham cut himself off from the world, the more Robert clung to him in his wistful, affectionate way. The more difficult their intercourse became, the more determined the younger man seemed to be to maintain it. Catherine imagined that he often scourged himself in secret for the fact that the gratitude which had once flowed so readily had now become a matter of reflection and resolution. "'Why should we always expect to get pleasure from our friends?' he had said to her once, with vehemence. "'It should be pleasure enough to love them.' And she knew very well of whom he was thinking. How late he was this afternoon! He must have been a long round. She had news for him of great interest. The lodgekeeper from the hall had just looked in to tell the rector that the squire and his widowed sister were expected home in four days. But, interesting as the news was, Catherine's looks, as she pondered it, were certainly not looks of pleased expectation. Neither of them, indeed, had much cause to rejoice in the squire's advent. Since their arrival in the parish, the splendid Jacobean Hall had been untenanted. The squire, who was abroad with his sister at the time of their coming, had sent a civil note to the new rector on his settlement of the parish, naming some common Oxford acquaintances, and desiring him to make what use of the famous Muirwell Library he pleased. "'I hear of you as a friend to letters,' he wrote. "'Do my books a service by using them.' The words were graceful enough. Robert had answered them warmly. He had also availed himself largely of the permission they had conveyed. We shall see presently that the squire, though absent, had already made a deep impression on the young man's imagination. But unfortunately he came across the squire in two capacities. Mr. Wendover was not only the owner of Muirwell, he was also the owner of the whole land of the parish, where, however, by a curious accident of inheritance dating some generations back, and implying some very remote connection between the Wendover and Ellesmere families, he was not the patron of the living. Now the more Ellesmere studied him under this aspect, the deeper became his dismay. 
The estate was entirely in the hands of an agent who had managed it for some fifteen years, and of whose character the rector, before he had been two months in the parish, had formed the very poorest opinion. Robert, entering upon his duties with the ardour of the modern reformer, armed not only with the charity but with science, found himself confronted by the opposition of a man who combined the shrewdness of an attorney with the callousness of a drunkard. It seemed incredible that a great landowner should commit his interests, and the interests of hundreds of human beings, to the hands of such a person. By and by, however, as the rector penetrated more deeply into the situation, he found his indignation transferring itself more and more from the man to the master. It became clear to him that in some respects Henslow suited the squire admirably. It became also clear to him that the squire had taken pains for years to let it be known that he cared not one rap for any human being on his estate in any other capacity than as a rent-payer or wage-receiver. What? Live for thirty years in that great house, and never care whether your tenants and labourers lived like pigs or like men, whether the old people died of damp or the children of diphtheria, which you might have prevented? Robert's brow grew dark over it. The click of an opening gate. Catherine shook off her dreaminess at once, and hurried along the path to meet her husband. In another moment Ellesmere came in sight, swinging along, a holly-stick in his hand, his face aglow with health and exercise, and kindling at the sight of his wife. She hung on his arm, and with his hand laid tenderly on hers, he asked her how she fared. She answered briefly, but with a little flush, her eyes raised to his. She was within a few weeks of motherhood. Then they strolled along, talking. He gave her an account of his afternoon, which, to judge from the worried expression which presently effaced the joy of their meeting, had been spent in some unsuccessful effort or other. They paused after a while, and stood looking over the plain before them, to a spot beyond the nearer belt of woodland, where from a little hollow, about three miles off, there rose a cloud of bluish smoke. "'He will do nothing!' cried Catherine, incredulous. "'Nothing. It is the policy of the estate, apparently, to let the old and bad cottages fall to pieces.' He sneers at one for supposing any landowner has money for philanthropy just now. If the people don't like the houses, they can go. I told him I should appeal to the squire as soon as he came home. What did he say? He smiled, as much as to say, Do as you like, and be a fool for your pains. How the squire can let that man tyrannise over the estate as he does, I cannot conceive. Oh, Catherine, I am full of qualms about the squire. So am I she said, with a little darkening of her clear look. "'Old Benham has just been in to say they are expected on Thursday.' Robert started. "'Are these our last days of peace?' he said wistfully. "'The last days of our honeymoon, Catherine?' She smiled at him with a little quiver of passionate feeling under the smile. "'Can anything touch that?' she said, under her breath. "'Do you know,' he said presently, his voice dropping, "'that it is only a month to our wedding-day?' Oh, my wife, have I kept my promise? Is the new life as rich as the old? She made no answer, except the dumb, sweet answer that love writes on eyes and lips. Then a tremor passed over her. Are we too happy? Can it be well, be right? Oh, let us take it like children, he cried, with a shiver, almost petulantly. There will be dark hours enough. It's so good to be happy. She leant her cheek fondly against his shoulder. 
To her life always meant self-restraint, self-repression, self-deadening, if need be. The Puritan distrust of personal joy as something dangerous and ensnaring was deep ingrained in her. It had no natural hold on him. They stood a moment hand in hand, fronting the cornfield and the sun-filled west, while the afternoon breeze blew back the man's curly reddish hair, long since restored to all its natural abundance. Presently Robert broke into a broad smile. "'What do you suppose Langham has been entertaining Rose with on the way, Catherine? I wouldn't miss her remarks to-night on the escort we provided her for a good deal.' Catherine said nothing, but her delicate eyebrows went up a little. Robert stooped and lightly kissed her. "'You never performed a greater act of virtue, even in your life, Mrs. Ellesmere, than when you wrote Langham that nice letter of invitation.' And then the young rector sighed, as many a boyish memory came crowding upon him. A sound of wheels. Robert's long legs took him to the gate in a twinkling, and he flung it open just as Rose drove up in fine style, a thin, dark man beside her. Rose lent her bright cheek to Catherine's kiss, and the two sisters walked up to the door together, while Robert and Langham loitered after them, talking. "'Oh, Catherine,' said Rose under her breath, as they got into the drawing-room with a little theatrical gesture, "'Why on earth did you inflict that man and me on each other for two mortal hours?' "'Shush!' said Catherine's lips, while her face gleamed with laughter. Rose sank flushed upon a chair, her eyes glancing up with a little furtive anger in them as the two gentlemen entered the room. "'You found each other easily at Waterloo?' asked Robert. "'Mr. Langham would never have found me,' said Rose dryly, "'but I pounced on him at last.' just, I believe, as he was beginning to cherish the hope of an empty carriage and the solitary enjoyment of his Saturday review. Langham smiled nervously. "'Miss Lehman is too hard on a blind man,' he said, holding up his eyeglass apologetically. "'It was my eyes, not my will, that were at fault.' Rose's lips curled a little. "'And Robert,' she cried, bending forward, as though something had just occurred to her. "'Do tell me. I vowed I would ask.' "'Is Mr. Langham a Liberal or a Conservative? He doesn't know.' Robert laughed. So did Langham. "'Your sister,' he said, flushing, "'will have one so very precise in all one says.' He turned his handsome olive face towards her, an unwonted spark of animation lighting up his black eyes. It was evident that he felt himself persecuted, but it was not so evident whether he enjoyed the process or disliked it. "'Oh, dear, no,' said Rose, nonchalantly. Only I've just come from a house where everybody either loathes Mr. Gladstone or would die for him to-morrow. There was a girl of seven and a boy of nine who were always discussing coercion in the corners of the schoolroom. So, of course, I've grown political too, and began to catechise Mr. Langham at once. And when he said he didn't know, I felt I should like to set those children at him. They would soon put some principles into him. "'It is not generally lack of principle, Miss Rose,' said her mother-in-law, that turns a man a doubter in politics but too much. And while he spoke, his eyes resting on Langham, his smile broadened as he recalled all those instances in their Oxford past, when he had taken a humble share in one of the Herculean efforts on the part of Langham's friends, which were always necessary whenever it was a question of screwing a vote out of him on any debated university question. "'How dull it must be to have too much principle!' cried Rose. "'Like a mill choked with corn. No bread because the machine can't work!' "'Defend me from my friends,' cried Langham, roused. "'Elsbeth, when did I give you a right to caricature me in this way? 
If I were interested, he added, subsiding into his usual hesitating ineffectiveness, I suppose I should know my own mind. And then, seizing the muffins, he stood presenting them to Rose as though in deprecation of any further personalities. Inside him there was a hot protest against an unreasonable young beauty whom he had done his miserable best to entertain for two long hours, and whom return had made him feel himself more of a fool than he had done for years. Since when had young women put on all these airs? In his young days they knew their place. Catherine, meanwhile, sat watching her sister. The child was more beautiful than ever, but in other outward respects the rose of Longwindale had undergone much transformation. The puffed sleeves, the aesthetic skirts, the naive adornments of bead and shell, the formless hat which it pleased her to imagine after Gainsborough, had all disappeared. She was clad in some soft fawn-coloured garment, cut very much in the fashion. Her hair was closely rolled and twisted about her lightly balanced head. Everything about her was neat and fresh and tight-fitting. A year ago she had been a damsel from the earthly paradise. Now, so far as an English girl could achieve it, she might have been a model for Tissot. In this phase, as in the other, there was a touch of extravagance. The girl was developing fast, but had clearly not yet developed. The restlessness, the self-consciousness of Longwindale was still there, out they spoke to the spectator in different ways. But in her anxious study of her sister, Catherine did not forget her place of hostess. "'Did our man bring you through the park, Mr. Langham?' she asked him timidly. "'Yes, what an exquisite old house,' he said, turning to her, and feeling through all his critical sense the difference between the gentle matronly dignity of the one sister and the young self-assertion of the other. "'Ah,' said Robert, "'I kept that as a surprise. Did you ever see a more perfect place?' Uh, "'What date? Early Tudor, as to the oldest part. It was built by a relation of Bishop Fisher's, then largely rebuilt under James I.' Elizabeth stayed there twice. There is a trace of a visit of Sidney's. Waller was there, and left a copy of verses in the library. Evelyn laid out a great deal of the garden. Lord Clarendon wrote part of his history in the garden, etc., etc. The place is steeped in associations, and as beautiful as a dream to begin with. And the owner of all this is the author of The Idols of the Marketplace? Robert nodded. Did you ever meet him at Oxford? I believe he was there once or twice during my time, but I never saw him. Yes, said Langham, thinking. I met him at dinner at the Vice-Chancellor's, now I remember. A bizarre and formidable person, very difficult to talk to, he added reflectively. Then, as he looked up, he caught a sarcastic twitch of Rose Laban's lip, and understood it in a moment. Incontinently he forgot the squire, and fell to asking himself what had possessed him on that luckless journey down. He never seemed to himself more perverse, more unmanageable, and for once his philosophy did not enable him to swallow the certainty that this slim, flashing creature must have thought him a morbid idiot with as much sang-froid as usual. Robert interrupted his reflections by some Oxford question, and presently Catherine carried off Rose to her room. On their way they passed a door, beside which Catherine paused, hesitating, and then, with a bright flush on the face, which had such maternal calm in it already, she threw her arm round Rose and drew her in. It was a white, empty room, smelling of the roses outside, and waiting in the evening stillness for the life that was to be. Rose looked at it all, at the piles of tiny garments, the cradle, 
the pictures from Wretch's Song of the Bell, which had been the companion of their own childhood on the walls, and something stirred in the girl's breast. "'Catherine, I believe you have everything you want, or you soon will have,' she cried, almost with a kind of bitterness, laying her hand on her sister's shoulders. "'Everything but worthiness,' said Catherine softly, a mist rising in her calm grey eyes. "'And you, Roshan?' she added wistfully. "'Have you been getting a little more what you want?' "'What's the good of asking?' said the girl, with a little shrug of impatience. "'As if creatures like me ever got what they want. "'London has been good fun, certainly, if one could get enough of it. "'Catherine, how long is that marvellous person going to stay?' "'And she pointed in the direction of Langham's room. "'A week,' said Catherine, smiling at the girl's disdainful tone. "'I was afraid you didn't take to him.' "'I never saw such a being before,' declared Rose. "'Never. I thought I should never get a plain answer from him about anything. He wasn't even quite certain it was a fine day. I wonder if you set fire to him whether he would be sure it hurt. A week, you say? Hey-ho, what an age!' "'Be kind to him,' said Catherine, discreetly veiling her own feelings, and caressing the curly golden head as they moved towards the door. "'He's a poor, lone don, and he was so good to Robert.' "'Excellent reason for you, Mrs. Ellesmere,' said Rose, pouting. "'But—' Her further remarks were cut short by the sound of the front door-bell. "'Oh, I have forgotten Mr. Newcombe,' cried Catherine, starting. "'Come down soon, Rose, and help us through.' "'Who is he?' inquired Rose sharply. "'A high-church clergyman near here, whom Robert asked to tea this afternoon,' said Catherine, escaping. Rose took her hat off very leisurely. The prospect downstairs did not seem to justify a dispatch. She lingered and thought of Lohengrin and Albani, of the crowd of artistic friends that had escorted her to Waterloo, of the way in which she had been applauded the night before, of the joys of playing Brahms with a long-haired pupil of Rubenstein's, who had dropped on one knee and kissed her hand at the end of it, etc. During the last six weeks the colours of this threadbare world had been freshening before her in marvellous fashion. And now, as she stood looking out, the quiet fields opposite, the sight of a cow pushing its head through the hedge, the infinite sunset sky, the quiet of the house, filled her with a sudden depression. How dull it all seemed! How wanting in the glow of life! End of Book Two, Chapter Eleven